I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have you ever wondered how a book makes its journey to being a movie? If you have, well, this episode of Between the Lines is for you. This is my chat with John Carlin, whose magnificent book, Playing the Enemy, which was featured in yesterday's episode, was made into the Clint Eastwood directed film Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman as Mandela. Now, the story of how that came to be is frankly one of the most amazing tales I've ever heard. So, without any further ado, here's the episode. Very often, books to movies have an interesting backstory. And as I was doing a bit of research for this interview, I watched Invictus again over the weekend, but mm-hmm. I didn't really have an angle on, on how to, to approach this. But <laughs> I found this speech um, that you did, and you, t- you tell this story about how you met Morgan Freeman in mm. Mississippi. And it's actually, it's one of the most astonishing stories I think I've ever heard. So, like, tell us about this encounter with Morgan Freeman in Mississippi, which maybe led to the film Invictus happening. Yeah. Well, you say it's one of the most astonishing stories you've ever heard. It's one of the most astonishing stories I've ever heard, too, and I'm the one who tells it. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's really quite mind-blowing. I've actually stayed in touch with Morgan Freeman. We're actually quite quite good friends. We've met a number of times after Invictus. We've met in New York. We've met in Rwanda, would you believe? And, you know, every time we meet, we, 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 we cast back to that astonishing, astonishing chance encounter. I better give you the short version, otherwise we could be here for, for far too long. But, I mean, essentially, um, I went over to Mississippi to do a story about poverty in the deep south and um i spent a long time preparing for it not least because i wanted to find a town that would somehow be representative rather than do something you know broad brushstrokes about poverty i wanted to go to one particular place and make it a kind of microcosm of the situation generally and and it was kind of by chance that i i, I lit upon a town called clarksdale in mississippi that's the first thing um secondly it was by a weird series of coincidences and phone calls and, and again I won't go into it but it began with an, some, a, a tip someone gave me in New York City on my way there that I got the name of this guy Bill Luckett that's right I was told if you go to Clarksdale you've got to talk to Bill Luckett because Bill Luckett is Mr. Big in Clarksdale and then he'll set you up with your story on the poverty he'll put you in touch with the food kitchens the prison the convent you know whatever and so, by also a series of quite bizarre coincidences, I, I arrived a day later um, in Memphis, the nearest airport, than a, a day later than I should have done because the plane broke down on the way there in Detroit, I think it was. Anyway, I arrive at Memphis and I hire a car, and I'm, and I'm actually already in the car about to set off when I call this guy, Bill Luckett, that I've never had any contact with before, and he says, where are you? And I said, well, I'm just about to get onto the highway i don't know 61 or whatever it was and he said oh well that's extraordinary i'm right behind you so just just go along there and stop at the kentucky fried chicken and i'll meet you there 
So I park at the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and astonishingly, a minute later, a guy who was indeed not just Mr. Big, but a very big man indeed, comes along and introduces himself. He was a kind of classic southern gent type. And he said, look, you follow me on down to Clarksdale, which is about 200 miles down the highway. And if you don't mind, I'll give you a call every now and again on the phone and point out maybe some things that might interest you, historical references that might be useful for your story. I said, great. So he called me two or three times, pointing out, I don't know, places, sites of the Civil War and what have you. And then on the third or fourth call, he says, by the way, Morgan Freeman's coming into town today. Maybe you'd like to meet him. He's a friend of mine. I'm not making any association at all. I'm just thinking, gosh, how cool. I'm going to go and shake hands with the famous actor Morgan Freeman. I think, great. So we stopped just before we got into Clarksdale at this little tiny airport. And out of this plane, which Morgan Freeman himself pilots, he's a pilot, steps Morgan Freeman, and he's introduced to me. And, you know, I'm just another fan. And in a rather kind of perfunctory fashion, he you know, shakes my hand and then on he goes. Anyway. So I go off with Bill Luckin into town. He's really helpful, giving me numbers of people to see for my story. And then he suggests that we meet up later on that afternoon. So he comes along and fetches me at my hotel. And lo and behold, sitting in the back of the car is Morgan Freeman, who nods, kind of only dimly sort of acknowledges my presence and carries on reading a paper. We go to Bill Luckett's home, the three of us. We sit down in the lounge. Bill Luckett goes into the kitchen to get a bottle of uh, Californian white wine. And it's just me and Morgan Freeman there, who's very taciturn. And suddenly I have this moment of illumination. And I say, Mr. Freeman, I think this is your lucky day. I've got a movie for you. <laughs> to which he responds with kind of raising an eyebrow. <laughs> oh, really? And, and he says, what's it about? And I think, well, I'd better be pretty crisp about this because he's not a very talkative fellow, I can see. So I said, well, it's about an event that captures the essence of the South African miracle and the essence of Mandela's genius. And he says, oh, you mean the rugby game? And I nearly <laughs> fell over. I just thought, you know, my God, how on earth on, on, on the basis of such slender evidence have you reached this conclusion? And then it turns out that something which I should have mentioned maybe before is that my agent, my literary agent in New York, had asked me um, a couple of months earlier if she could send my book proposal, just the synopsis of it, to Hollywood, to which I thought, well, you know, these Americans always with their optimism, whatever, you know, by all means, go ahead. Anyway, it turns out that Freeman informs me that he had read my book proposal, and he thought this was really jolly interesting. And in fact, he'd been thinking for some years that he'd like to play the role of Mandela. He'd actually bought the rights, film rights, to the autobiography. They'd hired about half a dozen screenwriters to try and distill, you know, the great big autobiography into a manageable movie narrative. They'd failed. And suddenly, with this book proposal of mine, he suddenly thought, well, maybe this is it. And, you know, the rest is history. We went off to have dinner, the three of us, and Morgan Freeman and I were just rabbiting away like old friends, rather ignoring Bill Luckett, rather rudely. And, uh, and at the end of the, of the dinner, he gave me his card with his um, email address, and the rest is history. It's just an, an amazing story. Um, I mean, call it serendipity or providence, whatever you, you want. It's, it's, it's a beautiful um, coming together of, of events. But you always hear about development hell and how these projects start, but they, they take years to come to fruition. But how did, how did it proceed after that? Did it take long for yeah. um, things no, to happen? No. Well, I mean, I, you know, I had been warned that, um, you know, that, that Hollywood or Los Angeles is littered with a sort of detritus of you know, brilliant ideas people had for movies that never came to anything. And this all happened incredibly quickly. Within, I don't know, a month or so of that meeting with, with Morgan Freeman, I'd made a deal. I got myself an agent in, in Los Angeles, um, CAA, 
and um, and they sort of brokered a deal with Morgan Freeman's production company that they got the film rights. Within about 24 hours of me agreeing to this deal on the phone, I remember I was here in Barcelona at the time, a screenwriter had flown over from Los Angeles. He spent a week with me. Um, we practically sort of spent 24 hours a day together, and he was just kind of drawing out every single last scrap of information from me, and I gave him transcripts of my interviews with Mandela and all kinds of other things. But the funny thing is I hadn't written the book yet. So then I had to write the book, and this guy wrote the screenplay, and it took him as long to write the screenplay as it took me to write the book, by the way. And, um, and so about six or seven months later, he had his screenplay, I had my book, and then I remember my agent called me in about September, it would have been 2007, I guess, and said, listen, I've just heard something. I, I'm not sure if it's true, but I've been told that Clint Eastwood has received a copy of this screenplay. And I said, oh, God, look, I'm not even going to, it's just it's too implausible, just forget about it, you know, go away. And, um, and a couple of weeks later, you know, I got a call from the agent again saying, Clint Eastwood wants to make the film. And of course, if Clint Eastwood wants to make a film, a film is going to be made and the money will be yeah. provided and it will happen. And that was that. And, and it, happened, it happened incredibly quickly. I mean, you know, I've, 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 I've got friends who work in, in Hollywood and films generally, and these things normally take a hell of a lot of time to come to fruition. And it was almost a sort of a record breaker between, you know, that first meeting with that serendipitous meeting in Clarksdale, Mississippi with Morgan Freeman and the film starting to to shoot in, in Cape Town, you know, it was, I mean, I think something like, I think less than two years elapsed, which in, in Hollywood terms is, is an extraordinarily brief period. Uh, that is very short indeed. Um, I was just saying to you before uh, we started recording that I finished. I actually finished reading the book last Friday and then I watched Invictus on Saturday. And that's the first yeah. time I think I've ever done that where I've immediately finished the book and mm. then watched the film. And I was struck, I was struck by the, the differences. The, they really are quite different in a lot of ways, although the, the core of the essence is obviously is still the same as they are, but they're, they're very different. But... What's your take on that? I mean, it sounds like these two projects were almost happening in parallel, but independently of each other when you talk about the screenwriter working mm. on, on that and then you working on the book. So maybe that accounts for, for some of the, the differences? Well, I mean, you look, inevitably, you know, you, 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 you're going to compress a story that in, in a book is about 300 pages to a 90-minute film. Um, there's going to be quite a, lot of, quite a lot of honing down in the film. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the, the, the triumph of the film is... So they capture the spirit of that time, the spirit of Mandela, and above all, I think Freeman does an extraordinary job of, of capturing um, Mandela. At the end of the film, you might recall, a picture flashes up of the real Mandela, and I've got a friend who was very much involved in, in the South African anti-apartheid struggle who was in jail and everything. I remember him telling me that when he saw the film and he saw Mandela's picture at the end, the real Mandela, he said, oh, who's that imposter? You know, so so, so Freeman, Freeman really did, did do it very well. I mean, I, I would have liked to have seen a couple of elements there that were that were missing, that were very present in my book. And I actually tried to argue for it in a number of conference calls after I saw the screenplay. But um, but needless to say, they, you know, they, they didn't pay much heed to my advice. And you know, who am I to be giving Clint Eastwood any advice about to make a movie? But I would have liked to have seen just a bit more of a sense of the right wing threat and a sense of, you know, the, the, the enemy to beat and, and what was at stake here in South Africa at that time. And I think I don't think that the film would have lost anything in terms of popular appeal. If you'd had a few a few guys marching up and down wearing neo-Nazi uniforms, this is pretty eloquent to any kind of audience. But they sort of missed that 
side of it altogether, which I, I shall always find a bit disappointing. I mean, what I would have done, if they had to keep it to, you know, whatever the precise length of the film was, I would have lost, say, three or four minutes of rugby and put three or four minutes of conveying the sense of, of the, the right wing arming itself to try and, um, you know, and destroy the young democracy. But they, they chose not to go there. Yeah, it's really interesting. Proportionally, there is obviously more rugby in the film than, than the book because I guess yes, it gives them yes. these dramatic set pieces, you know. But um, just to, this is the last thing I'll mention on it. But there's, there's a really brilliant chapter about the Springboks being taught to sing the black half yes, of the, I, the national I like anthem. I that chapter a lot. That's well, maybe I, my favourite chapter. I, I love that chapter. But it's, there's this amazing woman, I think it's Anna Munique, comes in to teach yes, them. Yes, yes, and, yes. And, yes. But the brilliant thing is, they all respond. Like they, they all get on board with it. And even James Small, who's the kind of bad boy of the team, he's very emotional. And yes. then three, three players actually ask to sing it uh, on their own at the end. That's right. And, and That's I right. think it's really quite an emotional chapter. But yeah. but then watching the film, what happens is like Pinar comes in and hands them out these sheets of paper with the lyrics on it, and they they scrunch it up and then they react very yeah. in a very hostile manner, which is yeah. maybe the reaction you might expect, but it's not the reaction that it was. No, it's but then, not. And, and and look, and I have to say, I mean, I haven't really said this publicly before, but that for me is the single most disappointing aspect of of the film. That's you know for. You know, in order to achieve a kind of you know fairly predictable, you know, dramatic conflict, yes. um, they 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 bent the truth completely, really, and just gave you the the, the 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 polar opposite of what in fact was the truth. And and the reason that I find that upsetting is that I know it upset the players. Yes. So so I was there. I, mean, I went to loads of premieres all over the world. I went to one in Johannesburg, and I had um, I think it was Joel Stransky, who's a terrific guy guy scored all the points in the final sitting next to me and he made some somewhat snide little comment at the end of it clearly referring to to that moment and um and i think it's i think it's a shame and i think it's um it's a travesty that you know obviously far more people will have seen the film than will have read my book and it's it's pretty sad that 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 idea should sort of you know be carried on through history that these guys um, you know, as you say, scrunched up the the, 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 the words of the of the anthem, but actually they took to it uh, with immense gusto, enthusiasm, and and sense of you know national solidarity. I think personally, as a, as a lover of books and, and a book publisher myself, I think I think that proves why books are better better than movies because you get all the nuance and and you know and 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 your book will, will stand the test of time, John. You know that will endure throughout the years, and people people will be able to to find the the, the truth of that um, in the book. Yeah, can I just mention one more thing that sure. you know I I, I I said how you know I told you about how my interviews with Mandela were the absolute backbone of the entire book but I did lots more interviews and I interviewed not all the players but probably 10 of the 15 and and talking to them was was really sort of wonderful and uplifting you know these guys who were brought up you know all of them except one were were, were white and they were brought up as being fairly sort of you know unthinking reflexively pro-apartheid guys who just you know at a pretty young age and most of them in their 20s they they, they got it. They got Mandela. They got the reasons for political change. And they decided to play on Mandela's team. And you know, at least half of the guys that I interviewed, at some point during the interview, they wept. 
Um, in the case of yeah. James Small, he didn't stop weeping all the way through. And, you know, there you are with these, with these great, big, huge, strong, tough, tough guys um, before you, you know, tears flowing down their cheeks. And in every instance, it wasn't in recollection of their glory at winning the World Cup. It was in recollection of Mandela's magnanimity. And, you know, I shall always treasure those interviews, um, you know, obviously for the, for the material they gave me for my book, but almost more as a, as a personal experience of, um, of seeing these people just so moved and revealing a kind of, you know, vulnerable, um, generous core beneath the ultra tough guy exteriors. Thanks to John for his time. If you've not done so already, please check out the first part of my conversation with John on Playing the Enemy, which is just below this episode on your feed. As always, a review would be great. A link to the Backpage mailing list is also below, which allows us to keep you up to date with everything we're doing as a company. And if neither of those takes your fancy, then please just tell someone about the podcast. Share it with one of your friends and you'll have done your good deed for the day. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.